Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. Appreciate Jeff and Carrie helping to read the text this morning. We'll also finish with Luke 18, uh, a short story by Jesus, a parable. Uh, the scripture's there in your bulletin as well as on the screen. I invite you to hear these words of scripture. So he being Jesus told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, thieves and rogues, adulterers, even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven, what was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. May God bless our reading of the Holy Scriptures, and let us say together, Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Yes, God, we ask that you would bless our reading and hearing of the Holy Scriptures. We ask that you would speak through these ancient and sacred words by the power of your Spirit. God, we ask this morning that perhaps you would speak through my words, that you would bless my words, that these words would be an inspiration and a guide for all who hear them. Perhaps, God, you might speak to these people in spite of my words. So be it. May they know your presence and your comfort and your care as we worship together. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You uh, know me pretty well by now, but if you don't already know, I'll share with you this morning a bit of a confession. Uh, I prefer things to be neat and tidy, okay? I wouldn't say I'm obsessive, like I haven't been diagnosed, but I'm pretty anal, all right? And the people who live with me and the people who work with me here at the church know this to be true. Uh, If you went up to my office, you would see my books on my shelves are organized in a personal catalog system. There's little sticky notes so I know which books are where. If you looked on my desk, you would see appropriate stacks and labels of folders and papers so I know exactly where to find things. Even things at home, my hobbies, my tools, the clothes in my closet, my shoes. I really like things to be where they're supposed to be, to be clean, to be well put together. In my mind, that's how life should function. But... That is not always the case, right? There are many things that disrupt those hopes, that disposition. I share with you in my Friday email just last week, I reached in the fridge, I think it was a Saturday, opened the fridge quickly, may have been my fault the way I did it, who knows, but a glass jar of salsa pummeled to the ground and shattered there on the tile floor. Now, a sane person would have responded calmly and carefully, but I just felt my blood pressure rising. You know, it's like, what happened? How could this happen? Why do they put salsa in glass jars, you know? Amen, yeah. I wanted to blame someone else, you know, maybe someone put it where they shouldn't have, but it could have been me, right? It was just an accident. So got to work cleaning, worried about glass being everywhere, making sure we got it all picked up. One of those little disruptions. The same happens at work, right? I have a plan on Monday, right? I got my desk organized. I got my week organized. But then as the week goes, the calendar gets disrupted. Papers end up on my desk in the place where they shouldn't be. Many books end up open. Ugh, gives me anxiety. 
This past week, I had a, a, a real failure. I'm, I'm pretty regular about turning, uh, getting the trash out to the road the night before. That's my preference, and so I usually do that. I have a little alarm on my phone, right, that reminds me to do so. And so I did that. Recycling was on one side of the driveway, a lot of boxes and bags and whatnot. Trash can on the other side of the driveway. Woke up one of those mornings where it was uh, gale force winds, right? And so my recycling was now across all my neighbor's yards, uh, even into the golf course a little bit. You know the drill. Uh, some of my neighbors are here. They saw that trash. So, so I was out there with a, a coat and tie on, uh, picking up recycling, trying to get it organized. In this sermon series we're beginning today to work with, uh, last week, of course, the bishop was here. That was the first Sunday of Lent. But in this Lenten sermon series, we're going to work with this theme of the mess in our lives. Uh, we're using this little book by Tom Berlin. He's a Methodist pastor. He's actually now a bishop in Florida. Uh, and, the sub, and the title is Restored, Finding Redemption in Our Mess, in Our Mess. And so we're going to be thinking about the messes that we've made, both literally but also, of course, figuratively. Uh, many of the Sunday school classes are using the book. I hope you are. If you're not, you're welcome to read it on your own. I think we still have a few copies out there. I won't just preach the, the book exactly, but I'll use some of his themes and content, and hopefully you'll find some parallels there as you talk about it in Sunday school, uh, parallels to some of what I say here on Sunday morning. So let's get started on some of those themes. When we think about the mess of our lives, we need to start at the beginning of the story. Right? And today you heard from Genesis 1 and 2, and you know some of those verses well. I'm just kind of reminding you of where the human story began. Right? So the order of creation, of course, in Genesis 1, everything is created. The last thing that's created is, is humanity. Male and female, he created them. And it says uniquely when God recreates humanity that he creates them in the image of God. In the image of God right? The Latin phrase is imago Dei, and that's a simple phrase you can learn. Imago Dei meaning image, Dei meaning God. And so imago Dei has been a fundamental of Christian theology forever, right? One of the first things we can say about God and the relationship to humanity is that humanity is created in the image of God, imago Dei. Right? And the imago Dei is unique to humanity. Right, All the other things in the created order were also created by God. They are also good. Right, And we share a lot of, a lot of things in common with the rest of creation. We're, we're very similar to animals in many ways. Right, We share a lot in common with creation. But what separates humanity from the rest of creation, according to Genesis, is that we are imago Dei. We are created in the image of God. Now, what do we mean by imago Dei? Well, this could be a whole book, could be a whole sermon series, but just quickly, a few things that stand out today. When God creates humanity Imago Day, there are a few things that come, come with that, right? One thing that you heard in Genesis 1 is he created them in the image of God and he gave them dominion over all the other created things, right? That's unique. Us people, us humanity, we, we have dominion which can be translated a few different ways. It could be like authority, right? We can use the created order, the animals and the plants and the ground and the water. Uh, it also could be thought of as responsibility, right? We have responsibility for the whole created order, right? That's unique. So if you think about the creation and a hierarchy, the Imago Dei have been given responsibility for everything else. The other thing that we read this morning, again, just hitting some high points here, when, when it says that we are created Imago Dei, it says that God created them in his likeness. God created them in his likeness. That's important because it means that the Imago Dei isn't just one individual. The Imago Dei is them together, right? So in this case, it's Adam and Eve, male and female, but we could take that even further. When we think about the image of God, we're not just thinking about the person, the individual. We're thinking about the collective humanity, right? So it's not that I'm fully the image of God. It's not that you're fully the image of God. It's that together, 
we represent the image of God. Male and female, black, white, brown, yellow, from across the globe, from across history, it is the collective witness, the fullness of humanity that is the Imago Dei. Right? And so we need one another to fully know and to experience the Imago Dei. The other thing that it says there in Genesis, as we've read this morning, in Genesis 2, uh, that God uh, took the, the ground, the Adama, the dirt, that God took the dirt, kind of like a child playing on the beach or playing with Play-Doh, that God took the dirt and he formed man. He made a little man out of dirt and then he breathed his own breath into his nostrils. Of all the things that are created in Genesis 1 and 2, this is the only time that this happens. And the word here for breath is the same word for spirit, right? So God breathed his spirit into the dirt man, right? And the dirt man came alive and this is what made the dirt man man, right? And so there's something unique about humanity, about people, that we contain the very breath of God. We have the spirit of God within us in a different way than the rest of creation. So this is all good news. Genesis 1 and 2 begins in this very hopeful vision. God created Imago Dei, right? Created humanity to be in his image in the Garden of Eden. A male and female, he created them, breathed into him his spirit. This is an exciting and hopeful time in Genesis 1 and 2. And it's important for us to remember that this is God's hope and vision for humanity. Both humanity back then, but even now, right? That we would be together in communion with one another. We'd be together in communion with God. We would fulfill this Imago Dei calling. This was the vision in Genesis 1 and 2. This is how the story began. Now, many of you have read Genesis, and you know if you keep reading Genesis 3 and 4, the story changes pretty quickly, right? Genesis 3 and 4 uh, invite us to see the way in which humanity has not lived into this vision that was offered in Genesis 1 and 2. In our house, we uh, have the pantry there in the kitchen. We try very hard to keep the sweets in the pantry, right? And what I mean by that is my children are getting craftier about sneaking those things into a pocket or into a backpack or a jacket and taking that candy or that snack upstairs, right? So we, being the good parents we are, we try to keep the sweets in the, in the closet. We try to monitor the sugar intake, uh, not just for them, but for ourselves as well. I don't know about you, but Halloween, I mean, I guess we had a five-gallon bucket's worth of candy. You know, I mean, we just had so much candy. It took up a whole, uh, a whole shelf in the pantry, right? And I was partaking of it as much as they were, right? I'm just as guilty. By Christmas in January, we still had a lot of candy, right? It lasted a long time. As we got through the holidays, we had, a, we had a fruit fly problem in our house. I don't know if you ever have this. We had gnats in the kitchen, and we were so anxious about where they were coming from, right? So we're taking the trash out, we're cleaning around the trash can, we're looking in the vegetable drawer, the, the fruit bowl, trying to find something rotten and something nasty. Finally, in the back corner, behind that Halloween candy, was a once delicious caramel apple that had been hidden. Yes, you're with me, you can see it now, right? And it was just out of sight, like you couldn't quite see it, and it was in the corner, and let me tell you, after three or four months, that caramel apple uh, was not looking so enticing. The gnats were having a good time with it, though. Sometimes things that start out good, that start out hopeful, that start out with good intentions do not end up that way. When we read Genesis 3 and 4, we read two stories. Of course, we read the story of the serpent tricking Adam and Eve to partake of the forbidden fruit. And this is the moment in which they sort of turn their back on God's will for them and they, they even kind of misrepresent what they'd been told by the serpent. And so God had one vision, 
And then Adam and Eve chose another vision. They chose to know as God knows. They chose to, to live in a new way. And so there, there was introduced a, a pretty significant uh, a fa- a fracture, fracture in their relationship with God. The second thing that happens in Genesis 4 is we have the very, uh, the very first two siblings ever in the Bible. And guess what? They can't get along right? Uh, Cain and Abel are born to Adam and Eve. They bring sacrifices to God. Abel apparently brings one with a more willing spirit. Cain brings one more reluctantly. God judges Abel's sacrifice as being worthy. Cain's is not. And so Cain, of course, experiences anger and frustration, so much so that he takes his brother out into the wild and murders him. And there's this really important line in Genesis 4-7. I bring it to you this morning. This is God talking to Cain. God says, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you but you must master it. Now that's God's word for Cain, but it's really God's word for all of us, and it's really God's word about the rest of the Bible. right? That despite what God intended in Genesis 1 and 2, that this new thing has happened, and the word for it, of course, is sin, and sin is lurking at the door for Cain, but really for all of us. right? And so there's been a change in the relationship that God intended And there's been a mess created in humanity, beginning with Adam and Eve, extending to Cain and Abel, and even to us today. Sin is lurking at the door, and its desire is for you. Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4, the beginning of the Bible, uh, uh, those chapters are about all of us, right? They're about creation, and they're about how the world began, but but they're really about, about us and about our relationship with God. How God desires one thing for us, Right, this Imago Day, this hopefulness, this Garden of Eden, and how we often choose something different, whether it's the forbidden fruit or whether it's to do harm to our siblings. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, we have this hope, this vision. And in Genesis 3 and 4, we have the ways in which humanity has failed to live into that. And so I'll offer that to you this morning as just sort of an image for all of our lives and maybe a, a bit of a reflection. Like, what are the ways in which we have made a mess out of what God has given us? What are the ways in which we have hurt ourselves or hurt other people uh, that God did not intend? The New Testament lesson from the Gospel of Luke uh, is this very short parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And so here's an ancient mosaic of those two who have gone up to the temple to pray. Uh, You know some of the background here, some of the context. Pharisees, of course, were religious leaders, uh, right, like myself. They led other people in worship. They helped to educate people on the ways of the Lord. They spent a lot of time at church. And so the Pharisee goes to the temple, as you have today, goes to church to make their confessions, to pray, to make their gifts and their offerings. And the Pharisee prays, thank God I'm not like all these other people. Now in that simple image that Jesus offers, he he sort of describes to us the temptation of all religious people. Particularly people who are religious leaders, but, but even people like you, religious people, people who are dedicated to church, people who count ministry and church life as important to them. There is a, a certain temptation about coming here and being here that allows us to stand in judgment of the rest of the world. As we pray and worship this morning, we may even be having those thoughts, thank God I'm not like those other people, all those people that are out there and all the bad things that they've done. Thank God I'm one of those people who comes to church and makes my offerings. And so we see in the Pharisee a sort of self-righteousness, a sort of denial about the world and about the brokenness within himself. And of course, on the other hand, we have the tax collector. 
again, the context, tax collectors were working for the Roman authorities, but they were sometimes also Jewish people, which meant that they were collecting taxes from their own people to give back to Rome. And in doing so, they were often collecting more than they were supposed to, so they were doing harm to their friends and neighbors, right? So they were, they were really disliked, right? So in this parable, Jesus offers up one. We got the self-righteous religious person, and then we have the tax collector who no one would like, and yet the tax collector is beating his chest, it says. Beating his chest. He's afraid to come up front, doesn't want anyone else to see him. And he simply cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So there's a, a real sense of sincerity and honesty in the tax collector. We, we know by, by those standards that the tax collector is a, a broken person, maybe a, a misguided person, maybe does harm to other people. But there's an honesty in his prayer, right? He sees himself for who he is and he's honest with God. And of course, Jesus concludes that the one who is honest is the one who has gone away justified. So it's not just a matter of us being religious by nature. It's not just a matter of us being committed to church, but it's a matter of us being honest about who we are, about what we've done, the ways we've failed other people and the ways we've hurt other people, the ways we have failed to live into God's vision and hope for us. When we were in uh, North Carolina uh, during the, the seminary years, we, uh, we served, or I served as an intern at a couple of different churches, and so we would go uh, visit them regularly on, on Sundays and Wednesdays, and, and those churches around the seminary were used to having interns, that's a common thing, and so they would set up these lunches for us uh, to get to know the church and to get to know the community, and so almost every Sunday after church, we went to someone's house and, and had dinner with them. Uh, I remember this one so poignantly. We were there in, in central North Carolina, kind of in a rural area, and we drove out to this home, and we were there eating lunch. It was a, kind of a warm, sunny day. They had uh, barbecued, and we were sitting on the patio, and just everything was going smoothly, you know, just trying to get to know new people, uh, trying to be helpful. And then the guy, the, the sort of the, the gentleman who owned the house, his home, he just started, uh, just started telling me his life story, you know, it was clear that he had prepared to do that, but I wasn't prepared to hear it. You know, I thought we were having small talk, uh, and he just started telling me all the serious things, right? And it started with his childhood and how things had been difficult and, and challenging his teenage years, uh, some poor decisions that he had made. And then, it, and then it really got complicated, and he told me about failed relationships and a couple of divorces and about multiple car wrecks and, and surgeries and long hospital stays. And I knew he, he carried a, a cane and he had problems with hip and back. I mean, the story just went on and on about how terrible his life had been and all the poor decisions he had made. Uh, and then finally, he reached in his pocket and he pulled out this big heavy coin, and some of you are familiar with these, uh, and in his case, it was a 20-year sobriety coin. Uh, and he was so proud uh, to show that to me and to talk about the way his life had been changed, right? And, and I didn't know, but that's why we had been invited to lunch that day, right? Because he wanted me to know and he wanted to share. And so he laid that coin on the table and he talked about finding, in this case, Alcoholics Anonymous, but other recovery programs are similar. And he talked about the way that changed his life and how he'd been sober for 20 years and how the church had been a big part of that, how he's married now to this other woman who loves him, how he lives a life that's marked by peacefulness and wholeness. And, and I don't know, I was a little bit younger then, and all that just sort of shocked me, right? I wasn't ready uh, for that much truth that day at lunch. After his talk, and I got to read a little bit more, and some of you know more about this than I do, uh, there are many programs like this. Alcoholics Anonymous is just one. There are eight-step eight programs, 10-step programs, 12-step programs. Of all the programs, though, they, they often begin with a similar premise, right? 
step one is admitting you have a problem, right? Admitting you have a problem. In Alcoholics Anonymous, they say something like, we are powerless over alcohol and our life has become unmanageable. Step one is admitting you have a problem. That's sort of the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? You can be a highly religious person. You can come to church, you can give your money, you can even pray regularly. But if there's no awareness of the problems, then you're missing out on some of the goodness of God, the healing and the forgiveness that's possible. The tax collector obviously is a broken person, but at least coming in his fullness and his honesty, opening up his heart to to God, then he's allowing God to, to heal him and to make him new. One thing I really like in in Berlin, I think it's in the second chapter, uh, for those of you who are reading it, one thing he says about people like us is that many of us are high-functioning sinners, right? We're high-functioning sinners. And what he means by that is we have figured out a formula to lead a successful and productive life and to hide our sins and failures from, from everyone else. whether it's something like alcohol abuse or some other kind of substance abuse or whether it's uh, financial pressures and failings, whether it's anger and judgment or licentiousness, all those things that that Jeff read in Galatians just a moment ago. We're high-functioning, right? We know we're sinners, we know we're broken, but we figured out how to hide that from other people, maybe hide it from ourselves, and certainly to hide it from God. And so in this Lenten season, as we prepare to celebrate Easter, the joy that is the resurrection. Christ the Lord has risen today. If we, if we really want to know that full joy, 